0: Presidents and Prime Ministers all talking about one subject, democracy. From the Copenhagen Democracy Summit, Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Today we're in Denmark for the Copenhagen Democracy Summit. Russia resurgent and authoritarian, China rising and communist. What are the prospects for democracy? Whereas we usually ask one or two guests a number of questions, today we're going to ask a number of guests just a few questions. What do our guests have in common? Each has dedicated much of his life to the workings and ideals of democracy. With us today, former Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom Nick Clegg, Former President of Mexico, Felipe Calderon. Former President of Estonia, Tomas Ilvis, And the former Prime Minister of Denmark and former Secretary General of NATO, Anders Faux Rasmussen. Here's a quotation from a former colleague of mine, uh, the late economist and foreign analyst Harry Rowan, writing in 1996, when will China become a democracy? The answer is around 2015. That prediction is based on China's steady and impressive economic growth, which in turn fits the pattern of the way in which freedom has grown in Asia and elsewhere in the world. South Korea, economic growth leads to democracy. Taiwan, economic growth leads to democracy. And in China, instead of democracy, we have President Xi. Term limits removed. China effectively has a new emperor. What went wrong?
1: I think it's, uh, it's not exactly that free trade will bring you to democracy. That's the proof. And I think it's a question of principles. It's a question of uh, international pressure, maybe. But we all maybe made a mistake related with China in that aspect. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Look, I mean, with hindsight, as ever, things are so much easier to see with hindsight. The assumption that there is an umbilical link between the profit motive and voting is actually, with hindsight now, a rather naive assumption. But look, you know, I think we've learned the hard way. This, this, this assumption, particularly after 1989 and the collapse of the Berlin Wall, that liberal democracy was going to be triumphant everywhere, that a sort of mixed right, capitalist right. economy would, ha- would always dance to the sunset hand in hand with, uh, with, uh, with mature, um, mature democracy. You know, these things are being proven wrong.
1: And actually, is not exactly a free market China because it's not exactly free trade. One of the principles of uh, markets is, if you made a mistake in your business, you, get you, to go fail. To, yeah, you go to bankruptcy. And that is not happening in China, because always the state, you know, the government, is able to recover and to protect and to rescue any company they decide. Which is, uh, they are breaking one of the main principles of market, you know, free market. You, know? right. you need right. to fail. It's not exactly exactly market. Right, right, right.
0: Anders. The thinking was that even as South Korea became wealthy and then a democracy, and Taiwan became wealthy and then a democracy, China, as it grew more prosperous, would move in a democratic
3: direction. That has not happened. What went wrong? Actually, I don't think it went wrong, I'm still hoping. Oh, you are. Uh, Yeah, I am, Uh, that developing um, um, economically strong middle class uh, in China will eventually also lead to more democracy because they will request uh, to have a say. So 10 years, 50 years, you're playing the game for centuries. Yeah, but let's say 10 years. If we meet in 10 years' time, I think you and I could agree that something positive has happened also in China. Also in China. How seriously
0: do you you take the Chinese as communists?
4: I've met uh, members of the party who drive Rolls Royces, so um, it has has virtually nothing to do with Marxism, Leninism. Uh, It's not ideological in the sense of sort of left-right ownership, who owns the means of production and all that. I think it's rather a, uh, it's a, a new form of a Mandarin class.
0: Russia, the end of the Cold War. Russia makes an attempt at becoming a good faith democracy. It's flawed under Yeltsin, but it's a real
3: democracy.
0: And now nobody would call Russia a democracy. What went wrong
3: in Russia? Well, when I first met uh, President Putin in 2002, he was a very strong pro-Western politician. In 2002? In 2002, Mm -hmm. that was actually immediately after 9-11. He was the very first uh, president uh, to call President Bush, and uh, and, uh, he suggested uh, that they could uh, cooperate. And if you go back and see the first public statements uh, from the newly elected President Putin in 2000, 2001, you will see many statements where he indicated an interest in joining NATO. Then suddenly he turned anti-Western. And I think that's because of two things. Firstly, the so-called Rose Revolution in Georgia that brought Tsargasvili to power. Georgia, yes. In Georgia. Mm -hmm. And the so-called Orange Revolution in Ukraine that brought Yushchenko to power. Both those colored revolutions convinced Putin that the Americans in general, and CIA in particular, aimed at exporting those colored revolutions to the Kremlin and get rid of him. And from 2005, he turned anti-Western. That went wrong. Got
0: it. He convinced himself that first Georgia becomes democratic, then Ukraine becomes democratic, and then he, he's next, yes. his regime is next.
3: And in 2005, he issued the public statement that the biggest geopolitical catastrophe of the last century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. What went wrong in Russia?
4: I, th- uh, I think you can also generalize this but uh, to other countries, but I think the original sin was voucher privatization, uh, in that every country had to privatize. Um, But Russia and Ukraine and a number of other countries actually did voucher privatization for everything. Whereas in my country, we only did it for living space. So, I mean, if you lived in an apartment- But explain
0: voucher privatization.
4: Well, because you work in, say, a nickel plant, uh, the, the, the valuation of the nickel plant is, you know, $500 million. And then you divide that money by the number of workers and each one gets a voucher saying, okay, you you own $10,000 uh, in stock for this company. Uh, and that's what they did. Uh, the problem with that is that as soon as you do that, I mean, immediately the value of the stock plummets. And within a matter of weeks or months, uh, what was nominally worth $10,000 worth 10 cents. Uh, or a bottle of vodka or something Uh, and then those people who had uh, in the uh, who in the beginning of the 1990s had access to large amounts of cash could just buy this up and legitimately become owners of companies or enterprises worth hundreds of millions, in some cases, billions of dollars for peanuts.
0: The foundation of the oligarchy.
4: Right, that's precisely it. But now the point is, if you think about the late 80s, early 1990s, the people who had access to large amounts of cash weren't necessarily the, the greatest people. They have accumulated vast amounts of money in a system where that really wasn't possible through legitimate means, and so they bought these things up. And so then so these you, are
0: masters of the black market? Yeah. They're insiders, friends of Yeltsin. Um, they're, they're close to the intelligence operations. And uh, who who, are, they? who uh, are they?
4: I would say mainly intelligence and um, and black marketeers. Okay. And so people who are already- they're here, not Eagle uh, Scouts. Yeah, of, of, dubious, uh, of dubious ethics uh, uh, with, huge amounts of cash by Russian standards, then with that money, buy things that are 100 times worth more. It's probably, the it was like the, the bargain basement sale of the century in the world. From the National
0: Defense Strategy, which is a document released earlier this year by the American Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, it is increasingly clear that China and Russia want to shape a world, not their regions, but a world, consistent with their authoritarian (laughs) model, close quote. So 30 years after the Cold War ended, the democracies find themselves in a new permanent struggle with authoritarian states. Is that an accurate description, or is that the Americans being melodramatic?
3: Well, uh, it's accurate in one respect, but I think there's difference between Russia and China. Russia is a geopolitical spoiler, It's a declining society, uh, while China is a rising economy. And I think at the end of the day, the Chinese leadership realizes that if they are to survive, they have to continue to be able to generate economic growth. To that end, they need to cooperate with the U.S., they need a well-functioning, open, free trade system in, in the world, and they need to transfer new technology to China all that will will require upholding, more or less, the current world order. Uh, So, I think that while China and the U.S. in the future will be competitors, of course they will, I think at the end of the day, they will work and walk hand in hand. And that's actually the optimistic message. It is increasingly
0: clear that Clear, 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 things we can see with our own eyes, that China and Russia want to shape a world, not just their regions, a world consistent with their authoritarian Hmm. model." Close quote. Accurate, or is this the Americans uh, being melodramatic? This is essentially saying we're we're in a new Cold War, we're in a new long existential struggle.
2: Well, we, 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 clearly, there is a, clearly there is a huge clash now between the broadly speaking small L, small D liberal Democrat value, democratic values that you have in Europe and North America with this sort of highly centralised, highly authoritarian, and certainly in Russia's case, deeply sort of corrupt. It's in effect a, it's in effect a sort of klepto, kleptocratic state. Uh, that's a clash. That's a clash of values. The, the great problem we have on several fronts is that I'm not sure if America and Europe now see the world in the same way, uh, particularly with Donald Trump uh, in in office. So, you know, the American worldview sees China as the biggest strategic challenger to American hegemony. If you're in Europe, much closer geographically to Russia, uh, and you see uh, Putin, you know, messing about in your own backyard, you feel that is a much greater threat to our continent than it is to the US. So oddly enough, if, if it is possible to agree that Russia and China in their different ways are posing um, disruptive challenges to the kind of values we both share, oddly enough, I actually think at this moment, unfortunately, Europe and America are seeing the world and seeing those challenges mm-hmm. more differently than they have done at almost any time in the post-war period.
1: Mm. The first thing, I, it is not clear, it's not evident that is happening but it's possible. Second China and I'm not an expert in that but I believe China and Russia have different strategies regarding that. In my opinion uh, in the case of China I believe they don't want to change the world in the way they are. They want to be accepted the way we are in the way they, they w- are. They
0: want to be a great power.
1: Yeah yeah but they don't want to change anyone else. And in my perception is the, the Russian pol, uh, foreign policy is more active, more aggressive, if I can say that. Uh, uh, but also, the, but also, Felipe,
2: perhaps less strategic, don't you think? In the, mm, in the sense that it's I It's a get, different, I, I, different strategy. Yeah, yeah but I get the impression, I don't know, I get the impression that for, for Putin, and you can see it from his point of view, he just wants to kind of mess stuff up as much as possible yeah, but so, that, so, so that so he can...
0: Let, let me ask you, this. so Russia, here we have Russia, about 130 million people. The population is shrinking. The, popu- yeah. the Russian population of Russia is shrinking. Ethnically, Russian population is shrinking. All they have is an economy that is extractive. They can sell oil, and they can sell natural gas, and they can sell minerals, and the price of their main commodities has been under pressure for a decade now. Uh, why are we worried about this backward country that's falling apart? And what does- Putin So right? what does Putin want?
1: He wants to be uh, the successor of Peter the de Grand, definitely, no? Is that exactly, I think yes, he wants he to will, be, new, he, he, he doesn't he wants want to rebuild more, the Soviet Union. What? He wants to be, he wants to rebuild, be the Tsar of this century. And He is on the road to do that, but, uh, but he wants to be uh, a dominant country, a dominant Tsar in the, in the, in the modern world. Instead of, I believe, China wants to to get the leadership of the world, and they are getting a more economic strategy, supporting other countries, investing abroad. I I mean,
2: I think, I mean, you know, Russian history there's this long, long, long ambivalence about is it a Western-facing country or an Eastern-facing country? It's a vast country which stretches stretches east and west. It is a nuclear-armed country; it's got a vast military apparatus, Um, but it's one that has always been concerned about um, encroachment. Um, and and the encroachment from its its strategic, what it has perceived to be its strategic rivals, either in America or in Europe. And, you know, I I don't need to repeat all the history about the the perception that sort of NATO was expanding too fast right onto the borders of Russia, and then this wish, this very, very deep-seated Russian wish to sort of keep uh, the West at arm's length and have these sort of buffer countries. I mean, all of that is playing itself out all over again. My point was, I think the way that Putin has... Is going about achieving those aims mm-hmm. is through this almost relatively common, almost anarchic hybrid uh, mm-hmm. form of, of 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 activism and disruption. It's a is kind it of it's, it's elevating yeah. disruption to a sort yeah. of, to a kind of strategic tool. It's more aggressive, more negative Whereas to I mean, think mean, you know? the Chinese, in a sense that sense, take a more take the, a more conventional approach. That they're, they're exercising big power uh, authority they're doing it logically, not least in their, own, in their own neck of the woods, and that's why you've got these pinch points in the so, South Pacific. But if the well, Chinese do- are
1: not looking at the conflict by themselves, no? There is not the equivalent to Crimea in the Chinese. Oh, well, but
2: policy. in the South
0: China Sea, they've taken those, those little atolls. Yes. Yeah, well,
1: but it's a more sophisticated way to do that instead of doing that's invading, and that's it.
0: It is increasingly clear that China and Russia want to shape a world Consistent with their authoritarian model. Close quote. Is that accurate? An overconstruction? Do the democracies now find themselves in a permanent struggle with China and Russia that, in some ways, parallels the Cold War we all lived through?
4: Well, I think that um, I think Russia is largely an appendage to that. Uh, they don't really. I mean, they have delusions of grandeur and restoration. Uh, but I mean the real player is China. And in the case of China, uh, I mean we, you do have a uh, basically a sort of philosophical clash of governance. It's not ideological. I mean China is a very capitalist country, uh, but it's a matter of how how you rule and uh, what is the role of the, of the citizen in a society. China is much more driven by uh this well i mean in some way similar to russia but this uh feeling that they have been denied what's theirs through sort of what, from the 1840s on they were the great power the oldest civilization uh and then uh this sort of century and a half of humiliation that then basically deng xiao brought them out of though in fact i think it was the motivation behind much of what mao zedong did but it kind of went off in uh, the wrong direction.
0: The role of Europe. As Prime Minister, you were very pro-European Union. Now we find a circumstance in which two years ago the British voted to leave the European Union altogether. The Italians just had an election in which Eurosceptical parties, I don't know that anybody's calling for a referendum yet to withdraw from the EU, but euro parties are, are now in government in Italy, Austria is skeptical of the EU, the new president of Austria, the alternative for Germany, the, 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 the upstart Euroskeptic party in Germany and now is giving Chancellor Merkel difficulty. The European Union needs to be defended. If
3: there is a defense for it, what is your view on, on the EU? Good, that,
0: for, good for Denmark and good for the world
3: still? Yeah, well, we need the EU because as a small country, we are very much dependent on cooperation with other nations, but the EU has to reform itself. And I would mention two issues. Firstly, the EU must strengthen its external border control. If you do not trust the external border control, then you will protect yourself raising internal borders and that will hamper uh, free movement. So. I think we should hand over to the European Union to control the external border. It's not for Greece, Italy, Spain, it's for the EU to do that. So that's one thing. Secondly, we should reform our welfare system. We should tell people, you have free access to our labor market, but you don't have free access to our welfare system. You have to work and contribute uh, to our societies in five or seven years before you can get full access to our welfare system. That's the way Europe can uh, invite the immigrants we do need without, um, uh, I mean, without people fearing that they will lose their culture and their identity. So so on immigration, I'm I'm thinking through this question now as I
0: formulate it, so bear with me a little bit. But what was it, two years ago, 2015, Angela Merkel lets in more than a million to Germany from Syria, chiefly from Syria as I recall, and causes, as far as I can tell, the political ramifications of that have yet to settle down in Germany. The long-term question is 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 as follows. The European birth rate is below replacement level, right? And in Africa, What's the population of Africa, 1.2 billion now? Yeah, yeah. Of those 1.2 billion, at least 600 million would look at Copenhagen and say, I'll take that. Of course. So the long-term pressures of migration northward from Africa will be enormous. Yeah. You trust the EU to handle that? Yeah, but you that can is, persuade
3: your fellow citizens it, to trust the EU to handle that? Not without reforms. And that's exactly why I say, okay, we need immigrants. Uh, Because uh, Europe has an aging population, so we need people who will work, so let's invite them, but you cannot get access to our welfare system until you have contributed to our societies for five or seven years. Um, I think that's the way the U.S., Canada, Australia, other uh, migration or immigrant countries, they handle it. It's a way to ensure that people are well into or will become well integrated in our societies and we should recall that the problems today are related to what I would call culture and identity. It's not a social or economic problem but people are afraid that their culture, their religion, their way of life are threatened by immigrants. So the only way to solve that problem is to make sure that immigrants are well integrated. I see the argument is that a lot of Europeans look at
0: the European Union and say this thing is a solvent of nationhood. It undermines national sovereignty. Why did... Well, how do you look at it from the Estonian point of view? How
4: did you look well, at, first it? Was was at it? Well, of course, I was Foreign Minister at the time when he made the decision to do that. And so it was, you were right in the middle of it? Yeah, I, I was the one that said we have to go to the European Union. And it was... Uh, it was very, I mean, sort of rational, pragmatic reason. Uh, The Russophile tendencies in a number of NATO members at the time would have precluded membership for us if it applied to NATO, uh, and they would have vetoed. Um, But, uh, well, it requires one veto, so, I mean. Wait, you're talking about NATO now? NATO, I'm talking about NATO, Okay. okay, but I'm getting the All right, got it. But if you're in the European Union, you can't veto another EU member states. Membership, a membership in another organization. So, no, so that was the idea: is that we join the European Union. Germany can, no, you know, they can no longer say, you don't want them. So
0: you joined the EU as a way of making sure of your membership in NATO.
4: Well, in Turalia, yes, but that was one of the reasons. Of course, that's pro- not a very aspirational reason, Tom. <laughs> well, I actually did want. I'm expecting a defense <laughs> of the EU here. No, well, right. there is. I mean, i I'm I'm okay. I strongly defend the EU, but i was saying the motivation Got was it. that there. I mean, in, the real motivation is to do the reforms that were necessary. And, and this is what I tell aspiring countries to NATO, like Ukraine and uh, well, Ukraine and Georgia. I say, look, if you're good enough to get in the EU. Then you'll get into NATO, but it, you better then make yourself good enough to be, uh, to get into the okay, EU. Yes, so
0: that's a way of imposing stringent standards.
4: Absolutely. So and, just, okay. and, that's, uh, and we met those. Uh, the difference between uh, the other way of looking at it uh, metaphorically is that uh, okay, NATO is you buy yourself a suit of armor and you pay rent of 2% of your salary every year. So, right. okay. uh, in the case of joining the EU, you, you, the joining process consists of step-by-step of step replacing every bone in your, your uh, osteoporosis infected bones with new titanium uh, bones that then basically, I mean you impose the rule of law that way in societies that had not been used to rule of law for over half a century.
0: Question about the American role. then. We're at a conference which was being hosted by former Prime Minister of Denmark, Anders Fogh Rasmussen. Quote, the world needs a policeman. The only capable, reliable, and desirable candidate for that position is the United States. America is destined to lead. That's one quotation. Second quotation, Irving Kristol, the late American political scientist, writing, while the cold war was still underway 1983 and he was very skeptical that nato nato should be reformed he thought as long ago as 1983 if we've learned anything from the experience of the last 30 years it is that dependency corrupts to the degree that europe has been dependent upon the united states the european will has been corrupted and european political vitality has diminished close quote so the American role. Now we'll come to you in a moment because you know you live you live with us as a neighbor, but here's the the European. So Donald Trump Donald Trump does not present himself as an intellectual, but there's a strain of thought that America's taking such a dominant role in the world and particularly in the relationship with Europe
2: has undermined Europe itself. So I think that bit of it is just complete rubbish. This idea, (laughs) there's just no evidence at all. The idea idea that somehow, there's no No, evidence at all. You're you're down to a Navy of, what is it, seven ships and not a single carrier?
0: The Germans have six submarines, zero of which is seaworthy now? Sorry, The the, the quote you quoted
2: was implying that there was some sort of political enfeeblement and corruption, which was brought about by the extension of the... The word corruption is here. Of the European, of the U.S. security. Look, in terms of military hardware and resources, yes. of course it's unbalanced. Of course if you, have a, uh, if you have a hegemonic military superpower like the United States and because of the settlement after the Second World War and because of the history in right. Europe, of course America has it in effect, and American tax, but just let me finish the sentence. The idea that that has led to political Enfeeblement or collapse, or, or even worse, corruption in Europe is absolute nonsense. It is, a, it is a function of the fact that America has for a long time been the only world's military superpower. Um, that has definitely meant that European governments have felt they don't have to do as much of the heavy lifting themselves. I think it is perfectly reasonable for every American president, and by the way, I was in government when President Obama used to say privately very very forcefully and undiplomatically indeed he was always much more diplomatic in public that he wanted on behalf totally understandably of american taxpayers to see european taxpayers foot more of the bill i think all of that is totally reasonable and there will be you know there should be a bit of rebalancing over the you know over period of time but that is quite quite different to what we now have which is a u.s president who is moving way beyond an argument about you know how you how you burden share in terms of the costs Mm -hmm. of the Transatlantic military alliance to basically kind of denigrate the very idea of a transatlantic military alliance, and as I said earlier, departing radically from the principles of multilateralism from the uh, Institute, the Bretton Woods institutions, which were basically Anglo-European creations in the Second World War, a sharply divergent approach to Russia and China uh, respectively. So I think we, let's of course, constantly berate European governments as we should to spend more money on I used to do it when I was in office and say, look, Britain spends 2% of its GDP and uh, Holland should as well and Germany should, fine. But to be honest, that in my view is uh, an important thing to dwell on, but doesn't, I think remotely, uh, capture the bigger problem, which is we now have in the transatlantic community, the two bits of it, just really seeing the world in ever more different, different ways. Well, so, we, uh, so, okay, so,
1: well, so. Let me go back to the expression of, uh, I don't like the expression of uh, world policemen, something like that. Uh, I believe in order, which is different. You no, know, uh, I, I believe in international order, international law, and I do believe that any order and any law should have one or another enforcement mechanism. And in that sense, yes, the United States is a superpower in military terms. But what we need to build is, it's like an international uh, enforcement, international force. It's like in this, in this movie of Star Wars, no? <laughs> the force, be, the with force be with you. And it is the, the American Air Force even better. But, the, but that's completely different. No, I believe it's, 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 it's clearly a power and is needed to preserve some kind of international order and equilibrium. But don't give the Americans the idea that they can, or they must, or they have the right to be the policemen of everyone else. So uh, we don't Felipe, accept could that. I,
0: again, on the relationship of Mexico and the United States. You were one of, uh, Vicente Fox was the first president elected of Mexico, who was from the Partido Acción Nacional, mm-hmm. which is broadly speaking center right, correct? Yeah. And pro, pro, pro market. <laughs> you were the second president, you succeeded mm-hmm. him. During your presidency, incomes in Mexico grew. The economy grew. How much of that, uh, for how much of that, grew, how helpful was NAFTA in
1: that? Completely helpful. Honestly, you know, before NAFTA, the Mexican per capita income at uh, PPP was less than $2,000, and afterwards reached like 14000 income per capita. And most of that do And that's for in 20 years or so. In 20 years, something right. like that. So completely successful story for us, definitely. And mm-hmm. even for the United States, uh, 1.1 families in the United States uh, depends directly 1.1 on- exp- million.
0: 1.1 million.
1: Right. Sorry, 1.1 million jobs depends directly on the export towards Mexico. And aggregate level, the world with Mexico implies income for 6 million families in the United States. Uh, let alone the the tourists. We Mexicans are the but among the biggest tourists in the United States and we are a very good partner for them. And the other way around, so basically NAFTA is an expression that 101 trade uh, knowledge.
0: Dependency corrupts. To the degree that Europe has been dependent upon the United States, European political vitality has diminished, close quote. So Irving Kristol is saying, It made sense for the United States to defend Europe when Europe was still poor and rebuilding after the war. But by 1983, Europe was rich. And we continued to defend Europe. And Europe never had to step up and and defend itself or bear the full cost of defending itself. So the argument is, the United States ought to step away or diminish its role. The second quotation comes from a book by someone called Anders Fogh Rasmussen. The world needs a policeman. The only capable, reliable, and desirable candidate for that position is the United States. America is destined to lead. Mm-hmm. You wrote that book two or three years ago. Do you want to uh, stick by that statement? Absolutely. Even
3: in, the, even in the era of Donald Trump? Absolutely. And I have traveled across uh, the United States. I know it's a very hard sell to tell people that you should be the world's policeman. People don't want to pay for it, but it is in the U.S., it is in the US self-interest to be the world's policeman. Firstly, because if you do not go overseas and fight uh, the, the enemies overseas, they will come and attack you on your soil. That's exactly what you experienced 9-11. Yes. If you do not knock down uh, emerging conflicts while they're still small and manageable, they will grow and the, the, the price in blood and treasure will be incredibly high. You saw that during the Second World War, the U.S. did not enter the war until uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, And finally, it's also in the American self-interest to preserve the world order you created yourself. So while it's a hard sell, I have to argue, you're destined to lead, but it's also in your own interest. Does Trump have a point that Europe needs to step up a bit? Of course, he has. He has, but oh, he's right. not alone. I mean, uh, Obama said the same. George W. Bush said the same. All no, but of they said it, it privately. Trump you know, is. Trump is. Yeah. Trump, he, he's, yeah. He's that's shouting right. it. And that way, he weakens uh, the alliance because or Putin. You think so? Yes, because Putin. Putin takes down those messages. He opens a bottle of champagne and says, "Okay, uh, they are split uh, within the alliance." So my <laughs> advice to President Trump as well as all others, discuss it, but do it privately. Do it behind closed doors. And by the way, by the end of this year, eight out of the 29 allies will fulfill the 2% criteria. We decided in 2014 that at the latest in 2024, all allies will live up to that pledge, and we are on the right direction. All right. Is one of those eight going to be Denmark? Uh, I hope so. (laughs) I agree that Denmark does not fulfill the 2% criteria, but Denmark is always prepared to uh, provide military and equipment uh, and personnel whenever NATO requests it. All right.
4: Time for the United States to play a smaller role? (sighs) Uh, Not for those reasons. Oh, Uh, really? I mean, I, I think that uh, Crystal's analysis is right. On the other hand, the U.S. got a huge amount out of that. It had, I mean, basically... But he's
0: correct that that
4: did undermine European political vitality? Yeah, but, I mean, the, the problem is that European vitality tended to mean let's march into Poland. Uh, so, so this is you know, vitality is like a central concept for a lot of those nasty regimes, you know, we are vital... We are virile. We are. All right, all right, all right, all right. Last question. I'm sorry, but that's no, no. true. It's true. And instead, the the U.S. got a huge, a peaceful market that and that was. I mean, two of the be- two or three of the best investments the U.S. has ever made. One is the Marshall Plan. Just, I mean, payback. You know, just enormous payback. And NATO, which basically allowed these countries to actually develop. Now the problem is there wasn't any kind of graduation ceremony out of that. Mm. Uh, it wasn't, there was no place where the U.S. said, okay, look, you know, we you're did this. You're rich now, you're safe now, now defend, let, your own, defend yourself. Well, or now, you know, let's do it on an equal basis. Right. I want to sort of probe the question of how
0: confident you feel about democracy. You raised the question of artificial intelligence. So conservatives like me Margaret Thatcher was big on reading Friedrich Hayek and Hayek said it is simply impossible for central planning to control an economy. You will never have all the information that you need. And lately there's this prospect that the Chinese with artificial intelligence, vast computing power, actually may be able to pull communism off. They may be able to pull off central planning. Do you buy any of that?
2: Well, it's certainly true that you can amass data on a scale that the Chinese can in a way that we can't without any compunction about how you use it. That gives the Chinese a great deal advantage. You have to kind of assume, and I, I do, but I sometimes struggle to point to immediate evidence for it. You have to kind of assume that the freedoms and the liberties that we enjoy in Western democracies gives us a capacity for change and innovation and ingenuity, which is not possible in in the much more authoritarian. But you're um, stating
0: that as an article of faith, like a man who's trying to cling to his a faith. Little
2: bit, a little bit at the moment. Yeah, I am a little bit. Um, but, you know, time will tell. Time will tell. Um, I personally think that democracy is seriously in the dock now, particularly after 2008. 2008, quite rightly, deeply shook the confidence of millions and millions of fellow citizens in a kind of free, financial free, crisis you know, free, free States, wheeling and dealing financial right system, which their poli- pol- political masters kept saying was brilliant. They screwed up, screwed up massively. And the bankers, you know, got away with it and ordinary families are still suffering. We've seen the longest decline in real take home pay in one Western country after the next, since the records began in the industrial era. That is a crisis of legitimacy in the way which we run our economy and our society. So the test is- Meanwhile, are the Chinese we have able- 8% growth. Yeah. And so the test is, are we ab- do we still retain the capacity for self-improvement? and for reform and for change. And my worry is at the moment, our politics, which is becoming more polarized by populism, is act, far from being supple and flexible, is getting rigid and dogmatic and stuck and paralyzed.
0: Let me ask this question, then, we'll, then I'll let you answer whatever you'd like. The question is as follows. Many wonderful inheritances, inheritances of the Spanish tradition, but there is within democracies in the Latin world Spain has Franco, there's the strongman <clears throat> temptation, right? And Venezuela used to be a genuine democracy and a very rich country and now Venezuela is an authoritarian state and a very poor country. Nicaragua, Arguable Bolivia, Cuba obviously, within your world, within your world of south of that particular border, where's the momentum?
1: Oh, definitely the momentum is running against democracy. Against democracy. Against democracy, definitely. And a big mistake we made in the world is to believe that democracy was some kind of a steady state. You know, once we reach the final goal, once we reach, we, once we are democratic, democracy... It's a permanent achievement. It's a permanent achievement. Mm-hmm. And it is not. It's, it's a constant, uh, unstable system you need to build on a daily basis, you know, feeding principles Providing outcomes for the people one of the problems they were saying is democracy was unable to provide good outcome Especially after the economic crisis and now people are looking for somebody else to know to pay and uh, What is pain is most of the governments living during the crisis uh, didn't survive. No My belief is the key issue for prosperity is rule of law the lack of rule of law in our region is explaining a very important part of the lack of development in Latin America. And the lack of rule of law and the lack of development are combining to provide authoritarian regimes as well. Because the, uh, there is a quite a damaging rationality about a very populist, and popular man, who uh, lead the people to the grave, right, to, the, to the wrong path, and that is exactly happening. That happened in, in Venezuela. Chavez, and now with Maduro it's even worse, that happened in Ecuador, that happened in Nicaragua, that could happen in Mexico right now. So the mood is really bad. I'm skeptical about, not skeptical, but I want to say I cannot be optimistic about the future of democracy in the region, so we need to work a lot in order to recover or to get those values, in order to get democracy on track again. And we have now this time the support, for instance, of the regional leadership, which is the United States, actually the other way around. We, are, we need to defend ourselves from the populace in our own countries, and we need to defend ourselves from the populace in the north, which is quite complicated. Sir Nicholas
0: Clegg, President Felipe Calderon, thank you. Resurgent Russia, rise of China. What do you say to some 19-year-old Estonian to convince him that democracy is the correct, the correct form of government for his country and leads to the most fulfilling life for him or her personally.
4: Can you say such a thing? Yeah, we can say that basically, since we've been invaded on an average of once, well, (laughs) once every 50 years, I mean, sometimes more frequently, sometimes less, during the last thousand years. uh, You've worked that out? Once every uh, 50, literally, basically, basically. okay. Twice a century for a thousand years. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, you know, a couple of centuries are worse. Uh, (laughs) Okay. The 20th was a real disaster, I mean, so. uh, so we had like six, okay, uh, in one you know hundred years period, um, but basically, on the one hand, everyone says okay, democracies don't in, you know go to war with each other. That is empirically true. It is also empirically true that every time we inv- invaded, it's been from an authoritarian or despotic regime. I mean that they just. They don't care. They're just going to ride roughshod over it. So maybe it's a good idea to hang out with the democracies. Tomas Ilves, former president of Estonia, now
0: a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Thank you. Thank you. How do you persuade a young Dane that democracy is still the hope of the future?
3: Yeah. That's not difficult. Because Danes, and particularly young Danes, they're very anti-authoritarian. They would never, ever uh, accept living in uh, an autocracy, never. And they know that in the long run, freedom, free speech, the right to criticize those in power, these factors guarantee you not only peace and freedom, but also prosperity. They know that. I don't need to spend many words on that.
0: Anders Folt Rasmussen? Former Prime Minister of Denmark and former Secretary General of NATO, thank you. Thank you. For the Hoover Institution and Uncommon Knowledge, I'm Peter Robinson. Mm